I would much rather vaccinate vulnerable people in another part of the world and healthcare workers personally than have the vaccine myself. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. I'm Monkey Louie, International Features Editor at the BMJ. Today, we'll be hearing from Professor Sir Jeremy Farrer, Director of the Wellcome Trust and advisor to the UK government's Scientific Advisory Group for Emergencies, SAGE. He tells us his thoughts on vaccine nationalism and why he is bullish about our response to new variants. Jeremy Farrell trains the doctor in London, Edinburgh, Melbourne, San Francisco and Oxford, where he has a doctorate in neuroimmunology from the university, where he also served as professor of tropical medicine and global health between 2000 and 2013. Now, Sir Jeremy advises the UK government as part of SAGE and the UK Vaccine Task Force. He is also chair of the WHO's R&D Blueprint Advisory Group and a member of the Principles Group overseeing the Access to COVID-19 Tools or ACT Accelerator, an infectious disease specialist who worked through HIV, SARS, bird flu and dengue fever outbreaks. He was appointed director of the Global Research Foundation, the Wellcome Trust, in 2013 in charge of its £1 billion of annual grant funding. In the first half of 2020, the virus was, was, um, was, was evolving to adapt to its new host, human, humanity. Um, in the second half of 2020, that sped up because there were more humans infected, there were more virus particles in the world, and evolution is essentially a numbers game. The more virus there is, the more mutations, the more likely there is for selection to happen. And it's, no, it's not uh, coincidence that we saw a fairly stable virus in the first nine months of 2020 and three variants already been described in the last three months of 2020. And in the 2021 and in beyond, we are likely to see the evolution of this virus pick up speed. Uh, eventually, I think it'll plateau and we'll come into a more stable state. But, but I think we can imagine in 2021, we will see new variants uh, um, being established. Those variants will have a biological advantage and they will be selected if they escape from natural immunity and vaccination. So we're in a race with the evolution of this virus. And I think the best way of countering new variants, which will come back to haunt us and potentially, not today, but in the future, escape vaccines. The best way is to drive down transmission everywhere and vaccinate as quickly as possible, because that reduces the chance of mutants and variants arising, which will escape uh, vaccination. And the best way of doing that is to make vaccines available globally. Now, I think it's entirely reasonable that gov lo uh, national governments consider their citizens first. I think that's that's real politic, uh, and I think it's inevitable. But I think as soon as one has vaccinated your most vulnerable communities and healthcare workers, I think you then need to make those vaccines available. I would much rather vaccinate vulnerable people in another part of the world and healthcare workers personally than have the vaccine myself. Uh, and I think that's not a bad way of, of looking at it. Now, when you make those vaccines available, they're not available to the world the next day. That takes planning, logistics, organisation, regulation, approvals, uh, export licences and all sorts of things. So if the UK felt that we'd vaccinated all our vulnerable population and we had enough to start the broader population, 
and this was going to happen on the 10th of March, then let's let's make sure today that we're working to provide those vaccines on the 11th of March and that they can be taken and used elsewhere so that they can provide that protection to the whole world. That's enlightened self-interest as well as being the right moral and ethical thing to do. Do you think they're uh, do you think they're open to that? Is this something that Sage can persuade? Yes, I do. There? I I I think they uh, I think the the Biden administration in the United States is very open to that. Of course, the Chinese authorities are very open to that, as are the Russian vaccine manufacturers. And of course, this is also a geopolitical point. Um, and I think uh, this needs to be done not just by one of those blocks, but by all of those blocks. Uh, and I think governments. You know, obviously, the UK is very committed to this and genuinely so. Uh, you know, the UK so far, I think, is the biggest national government contributing to COVAX financially. Uh, but what the UK, I think, needs to do in the coming weeks is contribute not just financially, but also with vaccine doses. Because you can have all the money in the world. But if but if all the vaccines are owned by somebody, you can't buy them. And and uh, I think the UK and I think the UK is very, very open to this. And, you know, I've been very critical of UK, uh, some of the UK policy making in 2020, of course. And I, you know, I think that's reasonable to do. It's also only fair, though, when uh, people get it right to to give them credit. And I think whether it be on the portfolio of vaccines that the vaccine task force put together, the distribution of vaccines now and the societal engagement on that distribution uh, I think has has been a remarkable success story. Um, a couple of quick questions on whilst we're on the subject of vaccines. I mean, one thing is that there's been a big debate about uh, single and double doses um, and dosing intervals. Of course, I mean, quickly your thoughts on on those. Do you have a do you support the single doses to everyone as much as possible strategy? Yeah, this is a really complex policy decision. And, and I think what you're trying to do here is bring the maximum benefit to the maximum number of people. And, and I, yes, have been a very strong supporter of vaccinating 20 million people once than 10 million people twice. I, I think there's all sorts of issues about equity here as well, actually. How do I choose which 10 million uh, in some ways? Uh, um, if I have somebody of 81 and 79 which one do I vaccinate? So I, I would rather we vaccinated more people with one dose. Uh, personally, I'd rather we conducted randomised trials so that we understand what the optimal time for the second dose is. Uh, basic immunology, uh, certainly for the traditional vaccines, including the AstraZeneca and Oxford and the J&J one, I think there the, the, the longer delay between first and second dose may actually be even better. Um, you know, I think you'll get longer term immunity by perhaps delaying that dose even further. And I think that needs to be studied. Um, and I think the increasing evidence, particularly coming from Israel, who have been very active in rolling out the vaccines and the UK, is if your primary desire is to stop people getting sick, stop hospitalizations and prevent the tragedy of people dying, then I think getting the first dose to as many people as possible was the right decision. Second thing to say, though, is that must be backed up with the strongest possible evidence that that is the right thing to do, because the world is looking at this and it's not just looking through the eyes of believers. It's looking for the eyes of sceptics as well. And we have a, a responsibility if we're going to do what has been done to gather the most robust prospective data we can. Uh, and I would prefer to do that through randomised tra studies transparently and openly. 
Which brings me to the the, the, the issue with follow up and the, the long term um, tracking of how effective the, the the various different vaccines are, how effective they are compared to each other, and sort of things like that. I mean, we're we're unblinding um, participants, obviously, because it's the ethical thing to do when their number comes up for for vaccination. I mean, your thoughts on 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 that process and how? I mean, it's a really complicated thing to do, isn't it? Whilst you're trying in the middle of a pandemic trying to roll these things out. It is extraordinarily difficult to do. I mean, one of the advantages, actually, of the British NHS system is is the tracking of that through general practice and hospitals is extraordinarily good. Um, you know, one of the major advantages of having a unified health system is that your data shared by people uh, is massively in the public interest, in my belief. Uh, and in the UK is perhaps not unique because I think Sweden, Denmark, uh, Germany, uh, other countries could do this. But we have a very unified health system, which is unusual. And that really helps when you're looking at this sort of data. Um, HDI UK, that, which is the umbrella group that brings together the data in the UK with Public Health England and NHSX, sorry, so many acronyms, um, uh, you know, I think they are doing a remarkable job in linking vaccination, GPs, uh, primary care and, and hospitals uh, as well. And, and that is very strong data. Um, I just think there are so many confounders in this, one dose, two dose, age, ethnicity, uh, whether you've been infected before or not, uh, waning immunity, that I think the easiest and fastest way of getting the most robust data would be to randomise, because that will deal with the confounders in a way that a randomised study does, and in a transparent way. If that's not possible, because of the policy implications that would be any delay, then the very, very strongest observational data is what's required. And I think Britain's got a responsibility there to the world because clearly this was a this was a very I think right decision, but but it is also a judgment call, and it does come with some risks inevitably. And I think when you're in that situation, it's just crucial to to um, gather the data. One question that we don't know that much about yet and which hopefully will come out of the sort of long-term follow-up and I guess the medium-term follow-up as well is about transmission. I mean, from what or anything that you've seen on the evidence to the effect of vaccination on transmission, um, what are your thoughts on that? Is it having an effect or are we looking at something that's much more sadly still transmissible even with the vaccine coming out? Yeah, this is a really crucial point. I mean, really, in an ideal world, what you want a vaccine to do is to protect the individual from getting sick and protect the individual from getting infected and transmitting. Uh, the, the great vaccines like measles do both. Uh, and they're fantastic vaccines. We don't yet know is the truth. Um, we do know that it's, it's all of the vaccines that are being evolved, uh, used at the moment um, have a much better than even my optimistic guess in the middle of 2020 would have would have suggested, which is that they have very, very good protection against you getting ill and, you know, very high levels of preventing you to go to hospital and, and dying. I mean, you know, about 90 percent ish um, against having to go to hospital. That's a, a incredible um, thing to say. What we don't know yet is the impact on transmission, as you rightly say. Uh, and the data of this will come out over the course, 
now in Israel, in the UK, and as we see them being deployed around the world, and from some specific studies looking at post-vaccinees and and whether they continue to have the infection or not. I have to say the early data from that, I think, is reassuring that against the existing variants, I think you have a reasonable vaccine efficacy against against infection and therefore transmission as well. Um, It's not 90%. It'll be less than that. But at a population level, that will still have a dramatic impact on reducing transmission. Um, The concern, of course, is that either that uh, immunity wanes over time and and transmission increases uh, when with waning immunity or indeed that new uh, strains of this virus appear which escape from that transmission blocking action of the vaccines and you know that's the sh- that's the cloud on the horizon that we need to be preparing for now um i mean here at bmj we've written a lot about uh, the underlying data and the, the lack of published data, um, the sort of announcements by press release and things like yeah. that. I mean, what it, what are your thoughts? And I mean, should all the underlying data be made available for public scrutiny um, from all these uh, vaccine candidates that are coming out? I mean, who should and who should be doing this and, and, and when, I guess? Is there a role for a, a more international body to be asking everyone from Russia to AstraZeneca and Pfizer for their data? <laughs> Yes, I, I think the, you know, none of us like scientific um, uh, results to be selected f- and released by press release. But we also have to accept that the, the, the public interest and scrutiny of information is so intense through this. We've never had a period that I'm aware of, certainly never in my lifetime, where science has been so discussed by the public on the front page of every newspaper for almost a year now. And I I think it's really unthinkable that an academic group, a a company would hold on to data for one, two, three weeks, not release it until a publication came out or a paper was submitted to a a journal or something. I I think the time between press release and all of the data coming out has to be very short. I think that's either hours or days, it's not weeks. But I think we can't be too critical of releasing press release data because of the the scrutiny. What we've got to be sure of is that the press releases are honest to the data, not selective, not hiding things, not pretending data didn't exist, but being honest with that press release data. And I think there's a holding to account here that if subsequent data is released, which doesn't match that press release, then people should be held accountable for that. That's not right. The press release must fit with the real data. Uh, But I'm a bit more relaxed than others, I think, about uh, the necessity in the world we live in at the moment uh, for some of the information to be released by press release. I just has to be honest. Um, On the uh, release uh, of the data, you know, I think we do have to respect um, uh, some... uh, some degree of uh, intellectual property, personally. I, I, I don't believe that, that it all should be in the public domain. But I think when the dossiers are submitted, for instance, to the WHO for pre-qualification from uh, the companies you've mentioned, uh, from AstraZeneca, Johnson & Johnson, Pfizer, Moderna, Novavax, um, the Chinese authorities, uh, Chinese manufacturers, Russian, etc., Serum Institute in India. These are submitted to the WHO, and I think the default should be all of that data is available. If there are 
very detailed proprietary information which just cannot be released uh, in order to allow some degree of protection of intellectual property. I'm, I'm okay with that, but it's got to be the exception, not the norm. And if a centralised body like the WHO has seen it, then at least, you know, it's, it's there and it's alongside all the other data and you know it's Correct. kind of been... And, and that has to happen um, because, for instance, and, and Gavi have been very disciplined on this to their credit, they have said we can't, we can't help distribute, purchase and distribute vaccines unless they've had WHO pre-qualification. And I think they've been extremely good uh, and disciplined on that. It would have been easy to say, well, in a pandemic, we're going to forget that. We're going to, you know, we're going to ignore that. And I think they've been extremely good to to say that's the rules we play by. Those are the rules for all other vaccines and they'll be the rules here. And I think it was the right decision. And uh, I know that at least three, maybe more now, four maybe, uh, vaccine dossiers are with WHO for pre-qualification. And with that, um, countries will be able to use that pre-qualification to license and use these vaccines. And that's a very, very positive step forward. A related point then, I mean, um, vaccines as a non-profit um, commodity, I guess you, you could say. Um, the Kaiser Health Network had an interesting story about that Oxford originally wanted it that their, their vaccine to be open source. And I mean, bodies like the Gates Foundation and the UK government pushed for there to be a pharmaceutical involvement, it ended up being AstraZeneca. I understand the British government obviously wanted the British company to be uh, sort of involved in that. I mean, can vaccines really be non-profit given the, the scale and the, the, the manufacturing needed and therefore, you know, having to involve commercial companies? And do you think that countries and companies and bodies like Welcome and, and Gates and others could have done more to make them even more non-profit than they've turned out to be? I, th- I think it's really important to remember that, you know, AstraZeneca is a Anglo-Swedish company before we completely wrap it in a Union Jack. Um, and give credit. I mean, I think industry firstly deserves great credit. Uh, they have stepped up... Um, using public money in some cases, but not all. Uh, and they've invested in new machinery, new plants, new technologies to drive vaccines forward. And, and there's no way we would have these vaccines without industry's involvement, firstly. Uh, and they deserve great credit for that. And the second is that uh, certainly two companies, um, Johnson Johnson and AstraZeneca, have committed to open book accounting and truly not non-profit um, accounting. And I think they deserve great credit uh, as well for, for taking that stance uh, as well. Longer term, I think we are going to have to think about the best way of addressing these issues, which are of major national and global importance, um, where we need a relationship and involvement of industry but governments are going to have to take more of the risk earlier on. Um, they're going to have to, uh, if you leave all the risk to be held by industry, uh, well, industry won't take those risks if there are easier approaches to take with other parts of healthcare. We're talking about the pharmaceutical industry and, and that's, that's inevitable. And uh, uh, you, you're not going to change that. So I think governments are going to have to, in the future, 
be far more willing to upfront fund investments in the R&D and development programs for uh, vaccines and treatments and diagnostics, which are absolutely critical for national and global health and security. Um, at the moment, essentially, as a simplistic way of thinking about it, uh, uh, companies, industry takes the risk because many things don't work and, and they put a lot of investment into developing new drugs and vaccines uh, and they take a lot of that upfront risk. And then they recoup that risk, if you like, by then selling the products back to governments. Well, inevitably, they will be attracted to things where that risk is less uh, or the return is faster. And they know that, you know, as in cancer care, they will get a return on that investment if they're successful. For diseases which may never happen or may only happen every 10, you know, you can't expect industry uh, with its commercial drivers to to invest in that. So I think governments are going to have to rethink that. Um, personally, I would like to see some sort of hybrid of a uh, de-risk government funded, but using the skills of the private sector uh, to provide for uh, vaccines, treatments and diagnostics of use for major risk pandemics and epidemics, whether regional or global. Um, and also, I think, it's a potential model for things like drug resistant infections as well, where some of the same things apply. And maybe there's lessons to be learned from other sectors. Um, uh, you know, industry does not make a uh, an aircraft carrier at risk and think, who should we sell it to? Governments contract that to be made and then one is made. And it's not directly analogous to health or the pharmaceutical industry, but maybe there are some lessons to be learned there. Um, you touched on treatments and diagnostics, of course. Um, these have been, I mean, not overlooked in some ways. They're, they're kind of the less sexy um, thing compared to vaccines, which have taken all of the headlines, it seems. Um, Welcome's obviously been very big involved in the Access to Medicines Initiative. Um, and just the other week, uh, Matt Hancock announced that he would be offering sequencing capacity to help other countries if they needed it from from UK labs. I mean, I wonder if you'd say a few thoughts on on, on how we talked about equity in um, in vaccines, but then when it comes to treatments, diagnostics, capacity for that, um, how do you do you see that rolling out? Is this something that's being forgotten about? Is everyone scrambling for vaccine rollout? Yeah, and and you know we we know from so many different things. Vaccines are absolutely crucial. Nothing I'm going to say undermines the importance of having vaccines, but they're always part. They're a part of public health. They're not the only part of public health, and and the other parts, whether it be trust, communication, uh, social sciences, uh, behaviour, um, uh, diagnostics, treatment, oxygen, PPE, protective equipment. These are all absolutely critical. And, and that's, you know, that's been shown so much during 2020. Uh, there's no magic bullet, um, much as vaccines are very important. And I think you're also absolutely right that there's been perhaps not an overemphasis, because I think without emphasis, you don't really make progress. But, but we must not forget these other elements from the social sciences, diagnostics, treatment, oxygen. Oxygen will save more lives in in certainly... Oxygen will probably save more lives in 2021 uh, than will a vaccine. Uh, 
quite possibly, not just for COVID, but beyond COVID as well. And yet oxygen supplies to many countries is in a very difficult position. And and we, for instance, along with UNITAID and UNICEF, the World Bank, WHO, um, Global Fund, I hope in the next days, if not a couple of weeks, we'll be pushing really forward on, on uh, oxygen access uh, to countries that are currently struggling to get access to oxygen. And and I think that's a huge contribution to make, uh, as we did in, in with the authorities in Malawi uh, last year. Uh, PPE the same, personal protective equipment for healthcare workers. If we don't protect healthcare workers, we won't have the health workforce in the post-COVID period. And then we won't have anybody to vaccinate for the vaccine, preventable diseases, or for maternal child health, mental health, and everything else. So so I think it's not just about vaccines. And uh, we must make sure that we have diagnostics available for existing variants and new ones, uh, that we have... Um, uh, we combine genomic sequencing worldwide and share that data, uh, and that we have treatments, not just dexamethasone, but many others, dexamethasone, oxygen, and many others um, in 2021, because we will need treatments uh, for the, for many, many years, decades to come. You mentioned speed of movement. And I mean, I, I remember um, you were quite critical publicly about how quickly um, the WHO have called FAIC um, on a number of occasions, the Ebola uh, back in 2014, and then uh, also, I guess, with COVID. Um, is the WHO... Is it the is it the body that can lead us towards like inevitably the next pandemic? Are there reforms that needed? Do we need a, a different organisation? Does it need to be changed into a different organisation in order to help us meet that? Yeah, I think the um, I think the time course in twenty twenty from the WHO was was actually um, perfect perfectly reasonable actually i mean i i personally i think i said at the time would have would have called a public health emergency a little bit earlier but it was i'm talking about a week earlier i'm not talking more than that maybe five days earlier actually and in the end i don't think that five days made the difference the, all the countries of the world had enough information by the 20th of january to know what was coming um that is when uh people made available um, the data on asymptomatic transmission, uh, uh, asymptomatic illness, asymptomatic infection, and severe illness and deaths, and that you could uh, catch the disease in Wuhan and you could take it to a second Chinese city. That You now have all of the information along with the genetic sequence to know you've got an animal virus come across to humans, no human immunity, no diagnostic, no treatment, no vaccines, you have asymptomatic transmission, you have very, very mild illness, and you causes people to die. Uh, and you can transmit it in a family or amongst healthcare workers. You know, that is all the information you need. And all of that was available during that third week of January. And so the WHO's call of a public health emergency is one thing, but every country should have used that information and said, we're going to act now. And actually, I think Singapore did, obviously very close links to China. I think all other uh, cities in China acted at that moment. Of course, it was just before Chinese New Year, so there was additional pressure a year ago. Um, Korea acted at that moment. And and yet most, most of Europe uh, and North America did not heed that properly, actually, until the middle of March. And it was that six weeks 
that defined the first wave. Um, and the public health emergency declaration towards the end of January, I don't believe would have made any difference. We had the information at a country level to act on the 20-something of January. So I think WHO, I, I think we've got to remember that WHO, I wish they wouldn't call themselves a secretariat of the member states, but they are a secretariat of the member states. That's the name that's used. And in the end, the, you'll have the WHO the member states want. And if the member states are not willing to fund the WHO properly, uh, to it be the premier public health authority in the world, and to give it the status and support that's required, you'll have a WHO that cannot live up to its responsibilities. And to be held accountable, but not have the authority is the worst thing in the world to be. To be held accountable for global public health, but be not given the tools to do it and the authority to deliver it. And I think the constraints on the WHO are too strong financially. Uh, I'd like to see uh, the member states giving the WHO the mandate to act. I'd like the WHO to be the go-to place for the very best public health clinicians, technicians, scientists uh, from around the world. If you, you know, I'd like, really like the best people in the world to work there. I think it has improved massively, actually, in the last five years. Um, and I think, personally, Tedros has been an extraordinarily powerful di director general. Uh, but in the end, I think it's too constrained by the member states. Uh, and I question sometimes whether the member states really want a strong WHO. Um, we're running out of time, so I'll just ask you one last question, which is um, what we ask everybody in this in this series, which is how how well it's usually how does the pandemic end but i mean i i do wonder whether the pandemic will end so to speak um what are your thoughts i mean you said that 2021 is going to be even far less predictable than, than the last than the last year which terrifies me slightly what's next you know well i i think my unpredictable doesn't necessarily need to equate to terrifying uh by unpredictable i mean the virus is now under, in, under increasing evolutionary pressure, and it will change. And we can't predict how that will change. We do know it will change. I think as long as we know that, we can prepare for the change. Uh, we can think ahead. Where is, it, where is it likely to evolve? What are the possibilities? We can learn from structural biology. What are, the, what are the options for the virus in a sense? Not options, but what are the possibilities for the virus? I don't think in a sense... I, I, I very strongly believe that this in this that uh, SARS-CoV-2 is a human endemic infection now. I don't think it's going to disappear. Uh, we will learn to live with it, as we have with most other infections. We will learn to live with it by good tests, by good treatments, and by good vaccines. Uh, and we've uh, and we can turn this disease into a preventable one and a treatable one. And I believe we can do that in 2021. We have to be absolutely humble in the sense of new variants. And we need to see 21 as the year that we transform this into that treatable and preventable infection and that we could cope with new variants if they appeared. Uh, the infection itself will continue in humanity, I think, forever, uh, certainly for decades. Um, but we can transform it into a preventable and treatable condition. And that's got to be our goal in 2021. And on that, I'm actually very bullish. I think we will do that. I think we will have a range of vaccines that can be used across the current variants and new variants. 
And I believe this will catalyze real progress in the development of diagnostic tests and of treatments that will be of huge value to COVID, but will also kickstart what we've needed to do for many years, which is uh, better science for vaccinology and better drugs and better diagnostics for acute viral infections. And we'll have benefits to influenza, we'll have benefits to dengue, we'll have benefits to yellow fever and chikungunya and many, many other viral infections. And some positive will come from this. So don't be terrified, Anki. That's a very good point to end on. So Jeremy Farrow, thank you very much for your time. You've been listening to Professor Sir Jeremy Farrow, Director of the Wellcome Trust and member of SAGE. This is one of our BMJ big interviews and we'll have more coming soon. Next week, we'll hear how this wave of the pandemic has affected surgery and why COVID is affecting outcomes so much. One doctor explains why they decided to switch speciality six months before becoming a consultant and why that decision opened her eyes to the mental health toll of working in the NHS. You can subscribe to the BMJ podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Monkeet Lily. Thank you for listening.